Now, 2 Samuel 22 is an unusual chapter in that it contains a psalm which we also find in the Psalms, Psalm 18. So it's, if you like, a repetition, pretty well a repetition of Psalm 18. And so you might say, well, if it's in the Bible twice, it must be doubly important. I don't know whether that's true, but uh, it, it, it is uh, quite interesting, that fact. When we read Psalms or when we read prayers, we often try to put ourselves into the position of the person who was writing it in order to try to understand what it was that produced this writing. Psalm, the, the Psalm 18 of 2 Samuel 22 is really quite an amazing uh, poem, hymn of praise, uh, statement and declaration of faith um, that has so much in it, and we can only just dig into it a little bit this morning. But um, I want just to explain a little bit about the context in which it is put here into, the, into, into to Samuel. It comes immediately before the chapter that talks about the end of David's life. And the context, if you look right at the beginning of the chapter, is that this is the song which, uh, uh, words of the song which David sang to the Lord when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. In fact, dig back a little bit into the previous chapter, as I sort of tend to do when I'm looking at uh, these sorts of things. We find that um, there, was ba- there, was, there were battles going on between the Philistines and Israel. David spent most of his life fighting against the Philistines and against Saul. And at one of these battles, David became exhausted. He was just worn out. I guess he was probably approaching 60, Adrian, and was uh, probably his strength was starting to decline. And, um, you know, he, he, he was getting too, ma- too much of an old man to, start, to keep fighting, really. Retirement was on the cards, put it that way. And um, at one point, he was just about overwhelmed. And um, uh, he, they, there was a, a, one of the Philistines was about to, to, to kill him. You know, literally there with his sword, poised to kill him. And then Abishai, one of uh, the David's warriors comes to his rescue and he strikes the Philistine down and kills him. And, and the men say to him, we're not going to let you go out in battle anymore. Never again will you go with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. He was, he was still vitally important. They saw him as key to the whole uh, of, the, of the state, if you like. He still had a vital, important role, but they, were, they could not risk him going to battle again because they were worried that he'd be fighting that, uh, that, that, that uh, he would be killed. And so if you like, this next 2 Samuel 22 follows on from that sort of situation. And here is David reaching a point where the Philistines had been subdued, where he'd reached a point where he'd won the victories, and now he was praising God for what God had done to enable him to reach that position. If you like, in a way, this is a statement of David's faith in God. And it's a statement and a song about his relationship with God. In verses 2 to 7, we find uh, that uh, David describes God as a rock. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock. 
in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I'm saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Rocks, you know, are full of hidden gems. But most of the time, we're quite unconscious of the rock beneath our feet till we start, till we start to fall and hit it with a bump, perhaps, and then we realize how hard and solid it is. In a way, this description of God is strange. For most people, their description of God would be light. It would be distant. We think about looking to God, looking upwards, don't we, to those things which are beyond us, which take us out of ourselves. That's what we think when we talk about God being awesome. He's somehow wonderful, away from us, powerful and in control. And yet, in this psalm, we have... The Lord is my rock. He's the one I'm standing on. He's beneath my feet, the thing that I don't often get down to, you know, unless you're getting into the garden and, you know, all, all that sort of place. And yet, isn't it true sometimes that actually we feel closest to God when we're at our lowest, when we're on our knees? Yeah. Is there something meaningful in that, that actually we sense God's nearness, his dependability, when we're aware that he's providing us stability in our life like the rock provides on which we walk. David feels God to be as close, as dependable as the rock of the desert beneath his feet when he was out being chased away by Saul. As He senses him to be an all-encompassing, reliable, tough, strong, unchanging do we think of God in those terms in our own lives? Is he our hiding place? Or when times are difficult, do we run to drink for oblivion, to romance, to take away our cares, to exercise for the release of endorphins, to mask our pain, to holidays to look forward to for excitement in life when life is boring? We all have our escape things, you see. Yeah, And these things can be a substitute for God because we can just be running away from the issues and things that, are, that we're worried about rather than running to the bedrock, to God who is there to provide stability and security to help us through these times of trouble. You know, we may not have literal enemies banging on our door and going to drag us out and destroy us in the same way that David had when he was fighting these battles. But there are enemies in our lives, aren't there? Things that try to screw up our minds, as we might say. Things that try to cause us to wander away from God. Enemies that we have to battle against. Temptations that we have to deal with circumstances in which we find ourselves which cause us to doubt God. God is rock. That's my first thing I take out of this chapter. The second um, 
heading I've put, God is explosive. And that was because of these descriptions which we read when the youngsters were in, the earth trembled and quaked. These are verses uh, 8 onwards. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because God was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. And then that wonderful verse, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Well, there's so much imagery in there, isn't there, that you could just take out of it. Such amazing poetry, really, that talks about our circumstances and situation. The words of this section, according to some commentators, seem to look back to the crossing of the Red Sea, about how things of the sea had been parted. And uh, certainly there is that inference in there of the, the, the uh, way in which the Israelites had been suddenly rescued from disaster when they were confronted with the Egyptian army, how the waters had parted and how God had rescued them from their enemies in that way. David takes them for himself as he looks at his own rescue. Just as the Israelites crossing the sea reached a place of dry ground, a place of safety, so David sees coming to his, God coming to his rescue, plucking him, as it were, suddenly out of all the things that were going to overwhelm him and planting him out on a spacious place, a place where, God, where David could enjoy peace. The explosive might seen in the storm and the earthquake, in thunder and lightning bolt, are signs of God's activity to save his people. Just as these words look back, so they look forward too. Do you remember how when Jesus was, uh, died on the cross, darkness covered the earth, there was an earthquake, dead men came out of their graves. So perhaps these words are looking forward indeed to the time when Jesus himself was, as it were, rescued by God and in rescuing, being rescued, rescued us as well. Is that our experience too? That at times when we felt deeply distressed and have cried out to God, he's come and he's plucked us out, as it were, from the situation we were in and put us in a place of peace in our experience. Maybe you can look back at experiences in your own lives like that when you felt really your faith was being overwhelmed 
when the situation that you were in seems to be sometimes one thing after another, one disaster after another, one panic after another. Sometimes they come together, don't they? The things that cause us anxiety and fear. Maybe God's saying to you that if you're in that situation this morning, just reach out because God is reaching out to you. I love that imagery here. God's hand, as it were, reaching out from on high and plucking David, who's just you know, overwhelmed with difficulties, plucking him out and snatching him away. Maybe God's hand is actually reaching out to you in the situation you're in this morning. And he's there, and you're just not seeing him yet. But he is there. We just have to trust him. So we've had uh, God is rock, God is explosive, God is grace. That's the title I've put into the next little section, which is verses 21 to 30. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. It's a strange little interlude, this one. It seems out of context with the first part of the psalm. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. The, um, this is, as I say, slightly change of, change of tempo. First, we've had God sort of coming in power. Now, David is saying, why me, if you like? Why have you rescued me from my troubles? Why me? In some ways, when you read those verses, you think, this is rather odd. Here is David saying, it's me because I'm good. I've done all the right things, so God's rescued me. And then you, you say, well, that doesn't really fit with my experience. Those who lead mor- morally blameless lives often have trouble. Often those people who seem to lead the most wayward lives seem to get away scot-free. doesn't seem to fit with my experience, this bit about uh, I've not turned away. I've been blameless. And what about David's life? Was he perfect? No way. David was uh, caught up in all sorts of uh, things that... uh, we would want to avoid ourselves, I think, if, we, if we're honest about the way we want to live our lives. The remarkable thing is that these verses do appear here, in a way, 
many leaders who find themselves in circumstances where they're engaged in warfare seem to lose their moral compass entirely, don't they? And that was David's situation. He had to keep fighting the battles against the Philistines. Constant life of warfare, really. What I think we sense, though, here from these verses is that he had that sense of God's protection and mercy. And that gave him the conviction that living by God's standards is important if we want to experience God's blessing. For us who look at these words in the light of Jesus, I think we come to an understanding of them that living according to God's law, yes, is important, and that we all break God's law, and none of us deserves God's mercy. And yet, when we trust God... God is the one who actually reaches out to us and he chooses to make us whole in him. He's not rewarded us according to our own righteousness. He rewards us according to Jesus' righteousness. So by Jesus' power, God reaches out to rescue us from our sinfulness. To put us into a place where we come to realise that obedience to God's law is vital and important if we really want to continue to enjoy God's presence with us. And for all the wrongdoing that David got involved in, his first and primary focus was on doing what God wanted him to do. That was why he fought his battles. He knew God wanted to destroy that which was evil about his country and in his country. He wanted above all that God would be the one who would be honoured and obeyed. He wanted God's law, God's decree, to actually be the thing which ruled in that country. So for all his mistakes and for all his sin, he still had that one focus, and this was why God chose to use him, why God showed his love to David. He had that focus on God's kingdom and God's right living coming about God is grace. All he asked of David was faithful service and obedience. He loves us in the same way that he loved David, and it's what he asks of us too. That doesn't mean we can earn. It doesn't mean that God rescues us because we've been obedient to him. We we are obedient to him because because God has loved us and been good to us, and God's desire is to be good to us and to save us. All we can do, really, when we look around at this and see what God has done for us is to stand in awe at how good, how gracious God has been towards each one of us. And then my final heading is this. God is invasive. This, comes, this was what I felt when I read verse 31 onwards. As for God, his way is perfect, The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. 
My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn over. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I do not know are subject to me, and foreigners come cringing to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. God is invasive. What I mean by that is, we've got this picture of David fighting battles to destroy evil, to destroy his enemies. Picture it this way. He says, God, you're the one who gave me the strength to do that. You sort of took over my life. You gave, you gave me the skills that I needed to do it. And if we take the enemies of David as the pictures of evil and destruction and wrong that we see all around us in the world today, what this is saying to us is God invades our life so that we can ourselves win victories over the, those things which are evil around us. Picture it in this way. God's spirit invades our lives, takes over our lives, empowers us, gives us, you know, gave David the skill with the bow. He gives us with the, 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 the gift of his word to overcome that which is evil around us and in the world in which we live. We, if you like, God's stormtroopers, there to be able to destroy. You may not feel like a stormtrooper, you know, all this, this sort of picture language of David and that sort of thing. But just by being humble before God enables God to give us the gifts that are needed to change, to transform the evil world in which we live. And it's by our presence here, God is enabled to invade the places of darkness and to destroy them. That's what we're here for. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, But that really seems seems to be the picture anyway that I get from this so in the, midst of, in the midst of evil, in the midst of destructive forces in the world around us, we are there to destroy that which is wrong. That's not a physical uh, thing. We're not here to subdue and destroy, to kill. But we are here to overcome the evil one at work in other people's lives. To understand a little bit more about this, in fact, I'll read you a little bit from a book I read, which was quite uh, a chapter of a book I read, which was quite helpful on understanding this, because I think it's so important for to help us. This is a book which was written by Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message version of of the Bible, who's a brilliant um, commentator on on the Scriptures in many ways, and um, he wrote this little book about. Uh, David, which I've had on my shelf for a little while, so I looked at it when I was preparing. He writes about how we have to understand the circumstances in which we uh, are working. And he had, we have to understand the circumstances 
of David's life. He says, when we look at the work that David does, we're shocked. David's primary work is war. Most of the work that David exults in doing because God made it possible for him to do it has to do with killing people. His work, his work world features weapons and fighting. We can't get an accurate sense of how the Christian life works if we fail to assess the conditions or if we avoid facing the conditions. Conditions, weather, soil, money, racial feelings and class rivalries, tribal traditions and social customs, technology and sex, the kinds of music played and the way language is used and the sort of stories told. The conditions for most of us become assumptions. Sometimes the conditions are favourable, sometimes unfavourable to being formed in the image of God, but always they're there. We can't become Christians in a social or cultural or political vacuum. Jesus was born under three conditions, Roman power, Greek culture, and human sin. The Holy Spirit, which gave exposition to the life of Jesus in the shifting conditions of the centuries of the church, is always at work in conditions. It is not that the conditions limit the Spirit's work, Instead, our Lord the Spirit chooses to work within the limits. The conditions out of which David's life is lived and narrated are made up in large part of Philistine culture and Canaanite morality, which is to say violence and sex. The Philistine beer mugs and Canaanite fertility goddesses that archaeologists dig up from old ruins symbolize the two cultures. I can't imagine a more uncongenial time or more unlikely conditions for living a convincingly articulated life to the glory of God unless perhaps under Pontius Pilate. And yet here it is, David, born, living and dying in Iron Age violence and sex, not exempt from their influence but not confined to them either, transcends them so that it's possible for us to read the story and hardly notice the conditions. We must notice, for we live under conditions that are equally and similarly unfavourable. But they're human conditions, they're the only conditions in which a holy life can be lived. We live in the conditions of our situation and circumstance. God's Spirit works within the conditions of our culture and our situation. And despite all those situations and circumstances trying to destroy faith, God is at work in us to bring us to faith and to enable our faith to overcome the conditions in which we live. And God's power, God is awesome because his power is at work among us in this way. God empowers us by his spirit to the fight, the conditions in which we live. So let's trust him and keep worshipping him and keep putting him number one and being obedient to him in the way in which David was. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock my saviour. He shows unfailing kindness to us.
his chosen people and to our descendants forever. Amen.